Good morning. Extend my own uh, welcome to those of you who may be visiting. Uh, And would you uh, join me in turning to the book of Hebrews as we continue our study of this great book. We're going to be starting on page 1001. 1001, if you're using the book that's in the uh, pew or the chair, that blue Bible in front of you. If, you're just, if you have a different Bible and you're not sure where it is, just go to the back and to find Revelation and just keep backing up and you'll run into Hebrews. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> and I suppose everybody has been got a handout, right? We, we will be referring, referring to that in a bit. <clears throat> Now, perhaps to give you a bit of the outline before we read, and you can see it as we go, he basically introduces this quote from Psalm 8, which interestingly, Psalm 8 is an exposition of Genesis 1. So the psalmist is reflecting on Genesis 1, and now the writer of Hebrews is reflecting on his reflection of Genesis 1. It's really, really cool to see This kind of thing, and we'll see it more than once in the book of Hebrews, this this sermon. So there's the introduction, then there's the quote, and then at the end of verse 8 and into verse 9, there is an interpretation of the quote. So it's pretty simple. Introduce it, quote it, and then give an interpretation of it. Having been having talked about angels in chapter 1, he goes back to that discussion. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, give us freely of your spirit. Lord, the very spirit that gave us this word, the spirit that worked in the Old Testament through the prophets and the spirit that worked in the New Testament through uh, the apostles and New Testament prophets. Oh, Lord, give of your Holy Spirit from your throne, Lord, that we might be gripped afresh with your word and with the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The warning that, as I say in this uh, out the, the uh, handout that I gave you, this warning, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard that's in chapter 2, verse 1, not only looks back, but it looks forward. In other words... We're still in the shadow of that warning as he continues to give us an exposition of Christ. Uh, You can see 
how I've outlined that there's the exposition, exposition one in chapter one, <clears throat> exposition two, and that the application is sandwiched between them, <clears throat> but it applies in both <clears throat> directions. Now, suppose <clears throat> it was found out here, uh, I'm 65, and I know some of you hope this is the last year, but maybe it won't be. Um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, in those latter years, uh, toward uh, a time of possible retirement in the years to come, suppose at this point in my life, <clears throat> having been in several pastorates, having been blessed in amazing ways in a ministry, uh, a wife, uh, children, grandchildren, that it was found somehow, <clears throat> and it really would be a somehow given my lack of understanding of uh, finances, but... Um, or, or doing this, but suppose I somehow had worked a program out so that I had been embezzling money all this time from our church. And it was discovered that I had stole $500,000 from the people of God over this 12-year period. One of the things that you would think about as you saw me go to jail, as you see me lose my wife who ends up divorcing me we'll say and I lose my children and grandchildren I lose all my relationships is he lost everything because of that decision Uh, because of money because of greed he lost everything and that's the point especially as he moves forward in this passage To say, pay much closer attention to what we've heard, especially in view of the world to come, which has been won for you by Jesus Christ. And if you, if you uh, hearers, these, these people to whom he's writing, if you turn away from Christ, you lose the world to come. You lose everything. And it was purchased for you at such an incredible cost. And you lost it if you abandon him. That's the feel of this passage as he moves into this new section. Talking about, as he says in verse 5, the world to come. In his introduction then of this quote, he He speaks of the world to come, and we see in his theology that this is the world that has been inaugurated in the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, they've already experienced some of the power of this world. As he expresses it in Hebrews 6, 5, he says, you've tasted the powers of the ages of the age to come. The age to come, this world to come, has barged into this creation so that you are experiencing the power of it. Even as he had just talked about in verse 4, that we saw signs and wonders and miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is the invasion of the world to come into this world. It's the new world that Christ has begun and it is active as it comes into our lives and affects our 
lives. In fact, all that we experience as Christians is because we've been joined to this world to come. The age to come. We're already a part of it. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you are in Christ, you are, literally, you are new creation. And as several commentaries have pointed out, it's not simply you personally are a new creation, which is true, but you're a part of this whole new creation. You are in new creation. You have a whole new existence in new creation. You are part of this world to come. And he even says later in chapter 13 that we seek the city that is to come. So everything is oriented forward, but we are experiencing it now. And this is what he's talking about. It was not to angels And as part of the handout, the angels were regarded as being the rulers in many senses of the world in Jewish thinking. And he's saying whatever role angels have in this present world, it's not to them that God has subjected the world to come. They are not the kings and queens of the world to come, however great angels are. And it's remarkable that he then starts talking about mankind. Angels are not the rulers of the world to come. Let's talk about human beings in Psalm 8. And it's really interesting. If literally he says there in verse 6, it was said somewhere, someone said. That's how you read that. Somewhere, someone said. Of course, he knows it's Psalm 8, and probably most of his hearers know it's Psalm 8. But his point is, it doesn't matter where I quote in the Old Testament, it's God's word. It's, it's his word. So it doesn't really matter who wrote it, who the human author was. It's God's word. God said it. It's our absolute authority. So here it is. And then he uses the word testified. Showing the witness or witness character of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament testifies of the truth of God. It's as though it's on the witness stand. Giving absolute true testimony about who God is or how God acted in history. So that we might trust the testimony of it. And so then he piles into Psalm 8. Having introduced it in this way. Uh, with some anticipation of, hmm, he hasn't subjected the world to come to angels. What's, where is he going? Where is he going now in talking about mankind and talking about mankind's rule on the earth? You see, he's building tension here. Uh, a great, he has a great uh, capacity for drama in that regard. So... What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And as we'll see, he really seizes on the second part of that quote from verses 7 and 8. In Psalm 8, the psalmist expresses astonishment. Astonishment at the glory and splendor and universal authority for which mankind has been created. 
that all things are subject to him. As one has put it, Psalm 8 declares a kind of imperial destiny for mankind. And by the way, I'm going to be quoting at various times from Lane and Custer and Attridge and Johnson and Hughes, uh, O'Brien. And so let me just cover them all right now so I don't have to say uh, he said or this one said. I don't think people enjoy hearing about this or that person necessarily. But as he gets to verse 8 and says, not yet, has, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You realize that when in verse 8 it says putting everything in subjection under his feet, it's talking about that perfect ideal that occurred in Genesis 1. But here in Psalm 8, there's a sense of projection into the future. This is coming. This is going to happen. And so he can say in verse 8, it, we, we don't see it yet. And in verse 8 also, he, he says, he makes certain that we understand, he left nothing that's not subjected, literally it reads. He's, he's making the point that the subjugation of all things will be absolute. There'll be nothing outside that kingship. Nothing left outside of the rule of mankind. But this naturally presents the question, but we don't see that. We don't see this kind of rule in the world. We, we see our experience of sin and disease and suffering and human and, uh, human and societal brokenness and, and death. But there's still this celebration of the expectation that everything will be placed under mankind's feet. But the question, of course, is where is it? Where is this rule? And so then his exposition or his interpretation goes, brings him to what we have as verse 9. So you see the situation. God has not put angels in charge of the world to come. Now he's hinting that mankind is destined that all things would be under his feet. It was announced in Genesis 1, but it's been lost. But still, there it is. All things will be subject under him. But how is it going to happen? Where is it going to come from? How, how is this situation going to be changed. And here I would appreciate you looking on the second page of your handout, rather important here, because I have to show you what he does with this passage in Psalm 8. It is beautiful. This is the kind of thing that makes you just stand in awe of whoever this writer is, be he Apollos or, or whomever. The grasp they had of the word and the way they, their theological uh, strength and, and the beauty of expression. So he takes this, these phrases. You made him a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. Remember, originally, this was, these are synonymous statements. So that you made him a little lower than the angels or a little lower than the heavenly beings is a place of great honor. You, that is, you crowned him with glory and honor. He's just, just under the angels, but he's crowned with glory and honor. But now he's taking that passage 
and he's applying it to Christ. Or you might say he's looking at it through the lens of Christ, which is entirely appropriate because Christ is the true man. Christ is the perfect man. Christ is the real man or the real human being, the perfect human being who will bring about the fulfillment of all things brought under their feet. So what he does then is you made him a little while lower than the angels is going to apply to Christ's incarnation. And you've crowned him with glory and honor applies to Christ's exaltation. But look what he puts in the middle. Now, in your ESV, they turn their phrases around so you can't see it in the ASV. I'm sorry. That's true. Uh, they, they turn their phrases around the English. But in the Greek, this is the order and this is what he intended. Notice. And you see that in the middle of your page. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. There's the incarnation. And now everything pivots from his humiliation to his exaltation right here in the middle. Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So you see, we see him who's made lower than the angels. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, we see him crowned with glory and honor. That's the point. We see him crowned with glory and honor, the one who is made lower than the angels. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's why he's crowned with glory and honor. But we see him. By faith, we see and know that he is the exalted one who has accomplished this great thing, who is exalted because of the suffering of death. See, the the question would arise, how can he be greater than the angels when he's made lower than the angels? But we see he was only made lower than the angels to to suffer death or to engage with the suffering of death so that he would be exalted and he would be the one who would inherit all things and gain the rule for mankind that man had lost. And he did it. Through the suffering of death. That's the beauty of this passage. Who's going to rule in the world to come? Well, actually mankind is going to rule in the world to come. But we see now things are not subjected. Things are not given up to mankind's rule. Or Christ, in fact, not completely in Christ's rule for that matter. But we do see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. This one who was incarnate and made lower than the angels. And so we have this amazing hope that our rule is guaranteed. Our reign in the world to come, in the city to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new creation, in the restoration. All the words that are used in the New Testament It is certain because it has been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. So you see, Christ fulfills the vocation for mankind. He fulfills God's design for all creation. And he displays what had always been intended for mankind to rule, to rule this world. 
So our glory and sovereignty are restored in Christ. And his experience of this death and crowning of glory guarantees that we ourselves will enter into that as well. So you see, he made our condition, including our death. He made that his condition. He took it on his own so that he would achieve this glorious destiny for us. And that's what's remarkable in the work of Christ to go so low to bear our death and suffer. And the emphasis is on the suffering of death. The protracted, agonizing, fierce pain and suffering of death. All the suffering that finally issued in death. That's in fact, you'll see the rest of this chapter and throughout uh, Hebrews. The emphasis is on the suffering that he endured. Which is all the more Moving that he would submit willingly to such suffering to win for us the reign that we lost. So it's not just what he saves us from. And he saves us from so much death and eternal destruction and wrath. But look what he saves us for. He restores the vision of Psalm 8 for his people through his own suffering. So that we will be led to the full realization of our intended glory, which we lost because of sin. It's going to be restored. It is restored now in Christ. Only in time uh, will it be, and it will only be a matter of time before we have it as well. So, in Christ alone the hurt of mankind is healed in Christ alone will the hurt of mankind be healed only in Christ will this creation be restored and only in union with him can you become what you were meant to be as a human being how else how else are you going to be restored as a human being who will live forever and reign in the new creation apart from Jesus Christ, who who took upon himself your humanity, who bore your death, who was raised to the resurrected life and reign to bring you into that as well. Where else is your hope? So you see, the world to come is ultimately, amazingly, not subject to angels. It's subject to human beings. Only because of the human being, the perfect human being, taking upon himself flesh and bearing the wrath of God away from us. He has achieved that exalted status that is your destiny. He basically displays what had always been intended for mankind. He's displaying it. What is man? What is the son of man? 
in Christ, brothers and sisters, we begin to see what man was intended to be. Because you see, Christ's divine glory has always been his his glory is God. We don't share any of that, of course. That's one thing. But this is why passages like Second Timothy, <clears throat> I mean, sorry, Second Thessalonians can say, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say, first time I read that, I thought, this is blasphemous. <laughs> really, I really thought that. So this, this can't be right. Until I realized, he's talking about the glory of Christ's humanity. The glory of Christ's humanity. He says, you will obtain the glory of Christ's humanity. That's why he achieved glory for in his humanity. So that your humanity would experience that glory. Why else would he do it? What's the point of death and resurrection except to bring us into that new creation and have new bodies and a new environment created by Christ? And it's interesting, he called you through our gospel. Why? So that you can obtain the glory of Christ. It's a pretty amazing calling, isn't it? Talk about good news. Good news of the glory of Christ. And so, the first application is right there. The great hope now that we all have. The great hope in the midst of suffering. The great hope in the loss of all things in this world. That you are destined for such glory. That no matter what the loss is, everything will be restored. No matter what the loss in relationship, you're complete every capacity you have for relationship will be enriched beyond your wildest dreams bodies broken and sick will be restored we have that glorious hope we also understand that when he, this, this is what's amazing about this passage. It's the first time he mentions, he, this is where he introduces the word Jesus, which underscores Jesus' humanity. It's also the first time he explicitly mentions the death of Jesus. So Jesus and his death. Everything about that just underscores the the kind of gut-wrenching statement, the humanity of Christ. But that all the more underscores it's a human being. It's Jesus that's being crowned with glory and honor. It's Jesus that is being crowned with glory and honor on behalf of all. And this brings us finally to worship. Worship. 
This affirms the terrible and costly way in which Jesus took the seat at God's right hand. The terrible, costly way that he took the right hand of God for us. So, I would apply this, brothers and sisters, that you are beloved of God. God, in giving his son, gave away everything. And the son gave away everything for your sake. To suffer the worst imaginable to bring you to that place. And that is true no matter what else happens in your life. And we've got to become thermostats that set the tone of faith. My faith is established by the fact that the son suffered terribly in a a terrible and costly way to get to God and to bring me to God. That's the measure of God's love. Whatever may happen to me day day in and day out, I'm not a thermometer, I'm a thermostat. Set, set. Kay likes the thermostat set freezing cold. Okay. I wear sweatshirts at home, you know. It's set. Okay. Your faith must be set. Set on the cross of Christ, on the suffering of Christ, on the measure of his love. And set on the hope for which he suffered. Not only to deliver you from wrath, but to bring you into the reign of the new creation. And we close where we began. Don't neglect this salvation. As he says, don't neglect so such a great salvation. And if you're here and you're considering the claims of Christ... I would set Christ before you. And, you know, coming to faith in Christ is, in a way, a simple thing. It's, it's all-encompassing, but it's coming to, to God, coming to Christ and saying, Lord, I, I recognize my sin against you. I, I recognize my rebellion against you, my, re, my rejection of you. But I also see the beauty and glory of what you've done in Christ What you've given yourself for so that my sin could be forgiven. I could be received as a child. I could become one who inherits the kingdom to come. Oh Lord, I entrust myself to you. I trust you to save me and rescue me from sin. I trust you to be my Lord and my King. The one to whom I give myself from now on. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Give yourself to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we we worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you that because of the suffering of death, you're crowned with glory and honor on our behalf. Oh Lord, What a king we serve. What a Lord we worship. What a God you are. Because this is the revelation of God. 
this is what God is like. He is a God who comes to earth. He is a God who comes to earth and takes flesh. He is a God who suffers and dies and wins for his people a crown. Oh, what a God you are. Lord, stir up our hearts in gratitude, in amazement, in awe, in wholehearted worship that issues in our lives, Lord, gladly being given up to you because we see what a God you are. Oh, bless us to that end, we pray. Amen.